Hi, I'm Rabbi Stephanie Ruske. I'm the Associate Dean in the Rabbinical School at the Jewish Theological Seminary and also the Executive Director of the Hendel Center for Ethics and Justice here. Something else that might be interesting about me, I'm a mom, I have eight-year-old twin boys, I'm a wife, um, I am a total evangelist for City Bike, which I started riding this spring and I love, love, love. Um, I do multi-faith social justice work, um, and I'm an activist. Have you always been an activist? Yes. <laughs> I think I was an activist before I totally knew what an activist was, but I have always felt called to act in the world. I read the newspaper like it applies to my life. I feel like how could you know about something and not try to do something, whether it's about changing hearts and minds or about bringing material needs to someone who needs it, or trying to understand and change a system to make more justice in the world. What have been your most successful activisms to date, do you think? <laughs> well, when my parents um, were moving, we were going through some of our old stuff, and I found this, like, sign that I didn't remember having made, but it was my handwriting, and I it triggered a memory of having um, done a whole coat drive in um, middle school or high school for Bosnian refugees. And I didn't probably didn't know where Bosnia was. I don't know what made me think I've got to act, but somehow it was just in my DNA that I needed to do something. And it wasn't enough to just donate a coat myself. I had to get the whole school thinking about it, um, focusing on it every day when they walked into the school, um, and then donating some coats. Um, but I think, look, in some ways, getting to work in this role at the Jewish Theological Seminary, making central, social justice more central to how we train rabbis and cantors and educators and lay leaders in this country, in some ways, it feels like a major action to me. So we've been doing voter registration here, which is not automatic. I don't remember ever doing that in rabbinical school when I was here. But starting to say, this is this is what you need to do. We need to be in relationship with the local community. Not only do you personally vote, but you sort of model an ethic of we must be voters. We've kind of got round to voting, which I immediately think of as the current political situation in the US and globally. What are your thoughts on your country at the moment? This is a hard time. I think um, I am inspired by the very many people who have seen this as a moment when they have to get involved because they don't like the direction that things are going and they know that the only way to change it is to vote and, and to get involved and not leave the political leading to other people. So I find that incredibly inspiring. Um, but I think this is a hard time. I think we're seeing the backlash to having had an African-American president. I think things that we thought were dealt with around white supremacy were not. Um, so I feel like this is a hard time to look in the mirror about who we are as a country. And it's also a moment when it's clear how much work there is to do, and it seems like there are a lot of people ready to pitch in. So it's both sad and also inspiring. Are you involved in anything as a direct result of Trump's policies right now? Well, I think some of my activism around voter registration, despite the fact that it's nonpartisan, has 
has been about seeing the difference that even just one vote makes. Um, I've also become more aware of the ways in which district attorneys have a very outsized influence on the lives of many people. And so trying to be part of a movement to get more people to see that even if they don't think that the president has much to do with their lives, other people who get voted in do, and that we need to be active. Um, so that's one piece. I also think around separated families at the border, like it is incredibly heartbreaking. It is incredibly embarrassing um, that this is who we are as a country. And so I went a year ago to the border. It is shocking to me that things are worse now. Not in any way, really. It's not like I thought, oh, I would go and things would be better. I'm just saying it was a crisis a year ago. And in a year, it's only gotten worse, not better. Um, so I, um, I am looking for ways personally and institutionally to be more involved in that issue. Um, but I feel like the, it feels essential to be watching the news. Um, Martin Luther King talks about having, like, that you have to stay awake um, and that all it takes for things to go terribly wrong is for good people to just sort of be people who maintain the status quo, who don't stay awake, who just sort of go about their lives. Um, and I, I share that teaching frequently as a call. I say to all my students, like, we will be asked for sure by our children and grandchildren, what did we do now? And I, I, the answer can't be nothing. What kind of country do you want your children to grow up in? First of all, a world where a country where we have not like where we have addressed and surpassed where we were around the environment. I feel like the last administration did a lot of work to make some changes around making sure that as a society we recognize that people needed health insurance and that the environment needed protecting in a serious way. And this administration has tried to roll back both of those things. So I want a country where it is expected that com companies and society have to, like part of doing business is that you have a sustainable earth, right? If, if the earth is unhealthy, none of us can live here. So I think taking care of the environment a country where racial justice is achieved, where people are able to talk about race and are able to design society in a way that you can't act on any kind of negative biases around race, where I have become interested and somewhat involved in the Poor People's Campaign, where people who are poor are not overlooked and marginalized, but they're actually at the center of society. and society is paying attention to their needs and making a system that doesn't give a very select few very, very, very high pay and everybody else very little. Um, so I think I want them to live in a country that's racially and economically just, where we're caring for the environment, where there's gender equity. You know, I want perfection. So do you want to just sort of sum up what's at the heart of what you do here and where you're at in terms of the thinking and what you're trying to achieve? I want it to be true that students who come to school here as rabbis, cantors, educators, lay leaders, um, 
we'll all have a sense of where in our tradition and text social justice and justice is sort of part of our inheritance and one that we're obligated to help enforce and drive in the world. Um, that it's not an add-on. It's not like we have Shabbat and we have holidays and we have history and like, oh, by the way, also, if you want, if you're interested, there's justice. Like that just as much as Shabbat is important and just as much as holidays and Jewish law, halacha is important, justice is part of that whole package. It's not an extracurricular. Why did you become a rabbi? Well, I mean, it's sort of a multi-layered uh, answer. We spent a lot of time at our synagogue when we were kids. Um, we were in a small Jewish community. There were not loads of people who went to synagogue. We had a rabbi who was very modest and didn't have a particularly good voice and was happy to have the kids lead anything that they knew how. And like, so I think I felt a sense of being a leader there and appreciated and talented. So I'm sure that from a self-esteem perspective, I felt good about myself in that leadership role. Um, I came to college at JTS in Columbia because I felt like by moving to the suburbs, I had missed out on a strong Jewish education. But I thought that was like gonna round me out as a person, but would not be my career at all. Um, I will say that I once said I, w I thought I should marry a rabbi. So I think that was, and a friend said to me, why would you marry one if you want to, if you want to be, like, be one, you know? <laughs> so I think some of it was seeing the role that rabbis had, being a community gatherer and leader, was appealing to me. But the thing that really sort of pushed me over the edge, because I graduated from college thinking I was never becoming a rabbi, um, there were two things. First of all, when I was in college, I felt like women still were new here as students and aspiring clergy. And there were still some teachers and classmates who weren't that happy that they were here. So I, I saw the ways in which f female students felt the burden of not being fully accepted here, and I thought I didn't want that. Um, I would say when I came back to rabbinical school in like 2002, um, I did not feel like there was a ton of difference in the classroom. I felt like the teachers were very equally as happy to have women and men and like it's not to say that sometimes women didn't find it harder out in the field and get asked all kinds of inappropriate questions in congregational job searches but in the classroom it felt like it was a different place um, and an egalitarian place seriously um, but when I was working at American Jewish World Service I was exposed to a lot of rabbis for whom justice was really a significant piece of how they did their work as as rabbis, as pastors, as, as religious leaders. And I thought, well, I grew up in a, in a place and at a time where people were not talking about social justice as part of Judaism in a really serious way. And I wanted that not to be true. I felt like it had to be central. And if you want to shape what a community values and talks about, one group of people who do that are rabbis. And I thought, I'll probably like the learning a lot. And I want to be one of those shapers of conversation. And so that was why I came. You're about to embark on a shaping of another conversation around ethics, which just sounds like a huge project. I don't know if you can sum it up, but <laughs> do you want to try? 
I will try. I think um, I'm really excited. I have an outstanding partner on the faculty, Yoni Braffman, who is um, one of our professors of ethics. And what I think is really exciting is lots of people have a sense of what's right in the world. And I think we're living at a time where people act like they automatically know what's right. What I'm, I'm right, whatever their opinion is, they're right, and it's a very fractured time. And we're also living at a time where people watch whatever news or listen to whatever news confirms their view of the world, which means that we're actually less good for the most part at real debate and at really hanging around and being in relationship with people who think differently. And I say that like I'm actually I'm not pretending at all that I'm above it. I love just as much as anybody else to hang around with people who confirm my view of the world. And I fight against it. One of the texts that I use frequently in my teaching about social justice is a story from the Talmud about a rabbi who had a study partner, and that study partner died. And when he died, this rabbi was mourning all over the place and very sad. And all of the rabbis got together and said, what should we do? And so they decide they're going to send him another study partner, like a replacement. And they think about, well, who should we send? And they say, well, send this particular rabbi because he is really smart. He has a very good command of the Torah, and he will be able to function on a high level with this rabbi. And so they start studying, and every time the first rabbi says his opinion, the other rabbi says, oh, you're right, and gives him all the 24 ways in the Torah that he's correct. And this rabbi, Eliezer, goes crazy and says, you're a terrible chavruta, my last study partner. When I would tell him the 24 ways he was wrong, he would tell me the 24 ways I was wrong, and we would know at the end that we had thoroughly explored that topic. You just tell me I'm right. And then in a very modest moment, he says, I know I'm right. I wouldn't have said it if I wasn't right. <laughs> but the, And then so he goes back to mourning, and the rabbis just don't know what to do when they pray for him to be comforted, and he dies because he can't live without somebody who is really sort of in struggle with him for the sake of really having fully explored it. And there's lots that's broken in the world and none of us on our own. We don't know how to fix it. And we really need partners who think differently than we do and to love them, right? Like that you have to be in relationship with people who really disagree with you. And I think as a society, and I include myself in this, like we're not so good at that right now. And so I think part of the opportunity of this Center for Ethics and Justice is to give people a chance to really explore, like, how do I know that what I think is right is right and just? Um, so you could take any of the issues around voter suppression or separating families at the wall, at the border. Like, there's not one way to think about any of them. I have very specific, or mass incarceration or the environment. Like, there's a million things that are the plagues of our time that I think, I hope that we are up to the task of helping this center be a place that gives people the thinking tools to really understand what do Jewish values say about this? How do I know that what I think is right is really right? And then also it's sort of like this center has the chance to bring activists and academics together. And that's exciting because there's not a lot of places in society where that happens. So activists are out there fighting the good fight trying to make things right, and they have thought it through, but could it be more rigorous? Probably. And academics are in the ivory tower thinking very hard about what's right, and there's not always a way to like make the world different because you've had these very 
significant thoughts about justice. And so I hope that we will bring justice and act activists and academics together and that each of their areas of work will be different because they've been in relationship. Do you genuinely believe that you can make change and people change? Yes. Um, and first of all, we come from a tradition that has a practice of tshuva, so in of repentance and change. And we, I mean, we have daily prayers. We have Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur that are well known as holidays where we're thinking about who have we wronged interpersonally, what kind of ways have we acted wrong in the world that might be between us and God. Um, but we also, as part of our daily prayers, have something called Tachanun, which I have always felt was underappreciated. It, but it's like a chance, like, it's a chance every day to say, what are the ways in which I, I wasn't right today? And to whom? And to sort of make amends, at least in a prayerful way, which hopefully can then sort of emanate into the way that you act. Um, I think that people can change if they want to. Um, I think that we need to have a framework in society and a sense that um, we need to be more expansive in our thinking. We've been very narrow. Um, but I can think of ideas that changed my mind, um, you know, or gave me a different way of thinking about things. So I, I think you have to be optimistic. Otherwise, we should just throw in the towel. With the ethics project that you're working on or about to embark upon, what are the three key areas that you're covering off and why have you chosen those three? So we're about to do a three-part um, convening series. One is on gene editing, one is on artificial intelligence, and the third is on refugees related to climate change. And all three of those things, while they're different areas, they are aspects of the world where people have to make choices. Human beings make choices about if and how to edit genes that are related to humans and animals. Um, and so somebody has to decide and assert some ethical authority. And we think that religious thinkers and ethicists should be part of that conversation. Scientists obviously have a big part to play in that, but um, in the cross-fertilization of ideas and bringing different schools of thought together, it seems like having religious thinkers as part of it would matter. Um, the same for artificial intelligence. There are tons of machines that probably all of us use and many more that we don't know we're using or will soon use, but <laughs> they're not on the market yet, where there are ethical choices to make. You can't, like, you can program a computer to, in a particular scenario, react one way or another, but somebody has to choose, like, which is the way that it should react. And so having ethicists and religious thinkers in that conversation seems essential. Um, and climate change, what to say? I mean, all of us are being impacted by it. And people, and if we think we have a migration problem now, I'm sure it's about to get a lot worse. And so, again, bringing religion into the conversation in a significant way that takes ethics into account 
Um, and we are leading these three, but we're also looking to partner across faith lines. And our hope is that this is a place where there will be thought and discussion produced, and we don't know what will happen, right? Um, but we think you start small with papers and talking, and then you figure out um, how can those academics and those activists, you know, do something in the world that is different than any of them would have done on their own track. Do you think you're keeping religion relevant or even not necessarily keeping it relevant, but making it more relevant, keep giving it a new place in society? I hope so. I mean, I think something that has driven me since I was a kid is like why I was always curious. Why did I never learn about social justice as part of my religious upbringing? It's like if this is how we see the world, then all of these things are part of it. If religion is valuable, it has to say something about every aspect of life. So life is changing, right? Like when the Torah was written, no one imagined that we would have artificial intelligence and gene editing, and we didn't know how to talk about climate change, though presumably it was, I guess, happening then. So um, it's a way of, like, yes, people have sophisticated ways of interacting with the world, and if religion can't keep up, then it will become antiquated and not useful. Do you see any of your qualities, this activism, this sense of social justice, in your boys? I have one son who I sometimes call Mr. Justice because it's generally about what is not fair in his life, <laughs> but everything. I mean, they're eight, so there's a lot of why, 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 and why is it this way, why isn't it that way, and that's not fair. Um, I try not to make it. I try not to saddle, like I want them to be able to develop into their own people and they don't have to only care about what I care about. But, um, you know, we did, when, when the Muslim ban was first starting, we brought them down to Battery Park where there was a protest and they made signs. So they had learned in school, for around Thanksgiving they were singing, this land is your land, this land is my land. Um, and also there's a Pete Seeger song, when I first came to this land, uh, I was not a wealthy man, and uh, so the so we wrote those songs on their poster boards, which felt like it wasn't me giving them a slogan that I believed that they had to carry and just be my advertisements, like because they're cute, but that it was a song that they sort of they were songs they got, um, and it was funny. One they used to have this tradition, I guess, in kindergarten and first grade of Mr. Bear. Mr. Bear was a classroom bear who used to go home with to each family's house. We happened to have Mr. Bear when we went to the protest. So he came to the protest, too, which was like, I was glad he was there. It made it sort of, he got to do what we did. We also took him to Washington, D.C. when the other one. Um, so we took him to some of the monuments, which were amazing. And that was right after Trump was elected. So to walk through, like, the Martin Luther King monument then felt very significant with Mr. Bear. So it is part of their upbringing, but I try to also allow them to become who they are, just like I had the freedom to become who I was. You mentioned that you lost your father when you were relatively young, really, and you just spoke then about how you wanted to bring up your children, guide them, but let them become their own people. Do you think your dad would think he'd done that if he was able to have a conversation with you now? <laughs> yes. Um, when I was a kid, and I have written about this, um, 
He used to ask us when he would put us to bed, what did you do today to make the world safe for democracy? Which is like a crazy thing to ask your children. <laughs> and then he would just listen. Um, but I feel like he, w- he was a very modest person. Um, he, was not, he was not an activist. The ways in which he tried to make the world more just were much more about interpersonal relationships. Um, he was a salesman, and he used to sell food service equipment. When I was a kid, he used to let me come to work with him sometimes, and it was like I loved going to work with him. Like you would go in, and it was like he would say, here's my boss, you know, he would say about me. And it was just like – and I could just see the, way, the great respect he gave – to the people he was working with, who probably were not the most respected individuals in whatever system they were working in. It was the person who purchased the ovens for the school. It was, But everybody, like, they were the most important pe- person in the world, and they were a whole person. He was just, like, a good guy. Um, I feel like he, was, he conveyed that he was very proud of us and that we could do anything that we put our minds to. And... Um, we should do something good in the world. Also, maybe we should make some money. Uh, <laughs> he always thought I should go into international business. <laughs> I don't even know what that meant, but like he thought that would be like a good thing. Um, but I think he modeled sort of a way of being a complete citizen um, and respecting other people. And finally, I have to ask you about the bicycle situation. <laughs> You're very proud of your little bicycle helmet there. I am. Tell us about the conversion. I, when you think about, like, I'm almost 45. So when you think about the things that you start to do at different stages of your lives, if, of your life, if anyone had asked me, oh, when you're almost 45, do you think you'll start to ride a bike? I would have said, like, no way, that's crazy. And then my kids were playing in Little League Baseball in Riverside Park on 72nd Street, and it just seemed like that was actually the best way to get down there. And... It has opened up a lot for me. If you, you can get places faster. You know how long it's going to take. You're not waiting for a subway. Um, the bike lanes in the city are amazing. Um, it happens to be that there have been a lot of bike accidents lately. There have been like 15 people killed on bikes, including somebody, um, the child of two reform rabbis, who was just killed very tragically in a bike accident. So I am like both... I am enjoying it immensely, and I'm also holding the danger as, like, something that's extremely real and has touched our community. Um, I don't know. I would say it has really, like, changed my day-to-day experience in a significant way. And when that happens to me, I like to share. So I've become a little bit of an evangelist for city biking. (laughs) I always ask everybody about their favorite verse. I just wonder if there's anything that you'd like to share as your favorite Verse. I don't even know if they're called verses. I know oh. nothing about Judaism. Well, in the Torah, it would be called a verse. And then you could also have, like, a favorite law <laughs> or a favorite story. I would say two things. So here I have, um, when I stopped working at Auburn Theological Seminary on their multi-faith youth leadership program, they gave me this, which um, has a verse that was their motto from Genesis Thirty-three ten. It says, "For truly to see your face is like seeing the face of God," and I think the idea—the idea of remembering, especially in the most heated moments of conflict and disagreement—that another human being is also made in a, in the divine image—for um, me resonates, and I think about it frequently. Um, 
And then also, you know, we learn in the Talmud that anybody who can protest and doesn't, it's as if that they as if they did the thing that they're not protesting. So I think that also moves me, right? Um, there were other texts that sort of imply that, like, even if you don't solve it, if you haven't protested, it doesn't say if you didn't solve it, then, you know, it's as if you did it. It's like if you didn't protest. So I feel like those are animating ideas for me. Bertie Prayers, a Watchware Media production.